Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from the series, Holy Waiting. In the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul encourages Christians in the midst of an ungodly culture to live in holiness as they eagerly await the return of Jesus. This morning we're going to be continuing our series, Holy Waiting, on 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verses 11 to 13, as always, the text will be up here on the screen. You've also got it on the card in front of you. And I'm going to be using the English Standard Version this morning um, to, to talk through. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Hear now the word of your Creator and your Redeemer, the living God. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Recently, we just had the 40th anniversary of the first Star Wars movie coming out. And there was a lot of talk about that in the culture. It was a major cultural story. And I saw on the internet, a a number of people had videoed their their younger children who were watching Star Wars for the first time. And they had watched the first movie and then they were in the second movie. And they came to the major point where Luke Skywalker had had his hand cut off and he was hanging there and he was screaming at Darth Vader, you know, you killed my father. And then, of course, Darth Vader, I'm sure all of you, I think, would already know this, but Darth says, the famous line, he says, Luke, I am your father. And, of course, they were videoing the children and watching the kids' faces as they were like, what? He's Luke's father? And the major shift that went, and it was a a huge hinge moment in the story because all of a sudden, everybody who had liked Star Wars was like, wait a minute, that just changed the whole storyline What does that mean about what happened before and where's the story going to go now? It was a major shift and change. And I bring that thing up today because where we're at in 1 Thessalonians is that kind of a hinge. All of a sudden, Paul's going to shift and move forward because everything has been, he's talking about the past. Hey, I was in Thessalonica with you guys and I love you and I care for you and I wanted to come back, but I hadn't been able to. And then suddenly, here starting at verse 11, Paul shifts forward to the future. And he's laying out everything that's going to happen in the rest of the letter now. He's going to cover two major themes for the remainder of the letter, and he's going to really introduce them in his prayer today. And so we're going to see this hinge moment and Paul's concerns for the rest of the letter. And, and what he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians. So let's dive in and take a look at this holy prayer that Paul's got here. And notice it's a little bit unusual because we're right in the middle of a letter and there's suddenly a prayer with kind of like no introduction. All of a sudden Paul is praying in verse 11 and he says, now may our God and Father and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. And so there's just this sudden shift uh, to prayer in the letter and One of the things that's a little bit interesting here, and we can kind of blow by real quickly, but I'd encourage you to think about, is the fact that Paul is praying both to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That doesn't seem unusual to us, 
But for a strict monotheistic Jew in the first century to say, I offer my prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in fact, if you notice, it begins with God the Father and our Lord Jesus, but the second petition about abounding in love is actually made to the Lord, that is Jesus. And he's really kind of directly talking to Jesus alone there. These are the kind of verses that we can go by real quickly as Christians who've been kind of steeped in tradition and miss the import of what Paul is doing there. It is astounding that Paul is saying, Jesus of Nazareth, this man that had walked and you could touch him and, and feel him, that he is in fact worthy of being prayed to. He in fact is God, and so we can actually direct our prayers to him. I will probably this week on After Hours talk about that a little bit more, because sometimes we, we want to talk about, you know, John 1.1 1, 1 teaches the deity of Christ and a few other places the reality is the more you study, the, the assumption of the deity of Christ breathes and pulses through almost every verse. You can't explain what Paul is saying and how he is directing his words without understanding who Jesus is. Even later on in this passage, I'm not going to have time to go over today, he's quoting out of an Old Testament book that is speaking about Yahweh, but Paul's applying it to Jesus. It's a very important point for us to understand. We can also learn a lot from his prayers. This is all just a little bit of a sideline here. I encourage you in your prayer life, if you don't know how to pray, you don't have to buy a lot of books. You can simply learn to pray from Scripture. There's nothing better than just praying Scripture. And one of the best things to do is pray prayers. That's why I love praying the book of Psalms regularly. But you can also pray Paul's prayers. Every letter, he's got prayers in there. And you can take them and you can pray through them. It gives you actual words. It also gives you what are the things that were on Paul's heart? Because that's a big clue to what ought to be on our heart as well. And we can learn to pray, for example, to the Father and to the Son, just like Paul does. Now, what is his prayer about? Well, his prayer here is for them to be reunited, for him to be able to get back to the Thessalonians. It says, may God our Father and the Lord Jesus direct our way to you. Now, this is going back to the previous section we're all the way back in chapter 2, verse 18. Paul had said, I really wanted to come to you. Remember, he said, we've been trying to get back. Certainly, I, Paul, did again and again. I wanted to come to you, but I couldn't because you remember, Satan hindered us. And so Paul here says, I'm praying that God would direct our way. And the, the word in the Greek means to make something straight or a clear path. But what Paul's really dealing with is, Satan has been putting up obstacles and preventing us from being able to get back to you. And so I am praying to God and our God and Father and our Lord Jesus and asking him, would you please clear the path? Would you remove the obstacles? I want to get back and see the Thessalonians. I want to be able to come and do them. And it appears actually that God did answer this prayer. If you read in Acts 19 and 20, you'll see that Paul went right back through this area. He was able to go back actually a couple of times to spend time there. But the reason Paul is doing this is because while letters are good, he's able to get two letters to the Thessalonians. Uh, nothing is like being together in person. It tells us something a little bit about how we are made. Uh, another verse that speaks about this in the scripture is in 3 John. Uh, there's only one chapter there. In verses 13 and 14, John is writing to a church, very similar to what Paul's doing. He says this, I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. 
Now, Paul's praying this because, friend, you and I were made for a relationship. One of the reasons we do a church picnic each year is just to be able to hang out because we were created for relationship. And we are created as well as flesh and blood localized beings. We're not created as the type of being that just floats out in the ether somewhere. You exist in a space and time place. That's the way God made you. And no matter how much, you know, people like Ray Kurzweil think that we're going to download ourselves onto the net someday and all of that kind of stuff. No, we won't. Because that's not what it is to be human. If one could technologically accomplish such a thing, you would cease to be human. Because human beings are made of flesh and blood by the design of God. That's not part of the fall. And therefore, we are localized beings. And relationships are best when they are face-to-face, when they are in person, and they are not being mediated by a technology. And that technology includes even when John said, I'd rather not do this in pen and ink. I'd rather come and see you face-to-face. But it also goes all the way up. Hey, I, you know, it's wonderful that when I was in Egypt, Uh, last year, I was able to Skype with Linda. I was really grateful for that. But that is not the same thing as going home every evening and kissing her at the front door and saying, I am really glad to be home. That's way better than Skype. And if you don't understand that, you need to get in some better relationships and you need to get to know some people because it's just not the same thing. And in fact, just as a little side tip, the more that we have technology mediating the relationship, the the more and more distant the relationship is actually becoming. You were made for flesh and blood relationships. You remember when I talked a few weeks ago just about ministry and the way Paul ministered, he talked about being a father and a mother and doing all that. It it all assumes that there is a real relationship. You can't be shepherded by flat Brett coming at you on a screen. You can't be shepherded by a voice over the internet. I'm grateful for all those things. Was a computer programmer like technology? Not the same thing as face-to-face. And so Paul here is saying, look, we want to be back with you because the church is a community of those who love Jesus and they're living their lives together. They're they're walking out their life and their faith together. That's what it means to be a church. Now that leads into Paul's second request, which is that he wants them to be a community of love. Because if you're going to be living life together, there had better be love because there's going to be friction in relationships. And so Paul prays that they would be a community of love. Notice in verse 12, he says, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. This is the second request. We want to come back, but may the Lord make you increase and abound in love. If you're going to be a community as Paul envisions the church, you first off have to be vitally connected to Jesus. Because apart from being connected to Jesus, you're not really going to be growing in love. One of the reasons we like getting all the technology, see, it's, it's easy. If you are trying to communicate with me technologically, I can just swipe left, right? I don't want to talk to that person. But that's hard to do if you're face-to-face. So we, we like buffering ourselves, but Paul says that's not how you were created. And so you need to be vitally connected to Jesus. May the Lord do something here, which is to make you grow and increase in love. And he's got two words here, may may you increase and abound in love. And it's hard to come up with good modern English ideas behind it. But what he's saying is, I want you to have a love that is ever growing and that is overflowing. 
it just keeps increasing, and there is so much of it, it's just flowing out all over each other. There is, uh, this isn't a prayer for a little love. It is a prayer for a superabundant, overflowing love that permeates the entire community. Paul says, that's what I want for you Thessalonians. And he defines who the love is for. He tells us that first it's, I want you to be a community that loves one another within the community. If he were writing to, to the Bay Ridge church here, he would be saying, Bay Ridge, I'm, I'm praying that you all would love one another within Bay Ridge Christian Church. Notice his words in verse 12, you increase and abound in love for one another. And this is the first priority. If the church can't love those within its own doors, we're never going to accomplish God's mission outside of the doors if we can't first love one another. And the underpinning for this is very simple. As a community of those who've been redeemed and who have God as our Father, we are all brothers and sisters with one another. And so we have to love one another. When you come into relationship with God and God becomes your Father, automatically other Christians become your brothers and sisters. Okay, I didn't pick my sister when I was born. I got a pretty good one. But I didn't pick her. I didn't have anything to do with that, okay? And when you become a believer, you don't get to say, well, I like the God is Father thing. I can just do without the brothers and sisters. No, you're born into a family, and in that family are brothers and sisters. And furthermore, because we are born into the new covenant, and we are a new covenant community, Jesus gave us the new covenant command. And that command in John 13, 34, and 35 says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men are going to know that you're my disciples if you love one another. So you can't be part of the new covenant. You can't be part of God's people, part of the church, unless you're saying, I want to grow in love for my brothers and sisters within the community of God. This is the way we're called to do. Now, let, let me be clear about this. Uh, a community of overflowing love what that's going to look like is we're going to continue to be patient and gracious and forgiving toward one another. And we are not going to separate over relational offenses. Relational offenses are going to come. They happen in every relationship. They always do. But the mark of maturity and following after God is, I don't let those things destroy the relationship. I keep the relationship and I continue walking. And that means within a local church, I don't pick up and go, which is the great American. See, that's our trademark move in America. This is what we do. So this that Paul is praying is a challenge to our highly individualistic, offense-holding, I'll-go-somewhere-else culture. You live in a culture now that everybody's talking about microaggressions. I'm thinking that I might think in a moment you might be saying something that offends me. And into that, the Scripture says you can't live your life that way. You cannot live your life holding on to offenses. We are called to walk with one another through good and bad times holding on to relationships, holding on to them over the long haul. And to do that, it requires we love, we forgive, we are patient, we are kind. We walk through times when we agree and we disagree. 
I was talking with Nellie yesterday. Um, this is the, the 50th anniversary of our churches this year. We're going to do a celebration later in the year, 50 years. And Donnie Myrtle and Tommy and Nellie have been here the entire 50 years. That's what happens if the church starts in your basement. Kind of happens. You have to be there. Um, so they've been together in doing that. And, and I've known Donnie and Myrtle and Tommy and Nellie and also Jim and Beth for 37 years. And Renee and Tom and some of them, 37 years we've done that. If you're going to walk together for 37 years or 50 years, you will not always agree. And if you're going to stay together, you have to love. And you have to say, I'm more committed to that than I am getting fired up about other things. But I want to tell you, the other thing we were saying is relationships are like good wine. They're not made in a day. And in fact, they get better the longer you go. And what we do in our offense-holding culture is we cut off the best part of relationships because I would rather hold on to my offenses than have superabounding, ever-increasing, overflowing love that covers a multitude of offenses and sins. We pick up and we go somewhere else and we thereby miss the best part of what God has for us. So the Christian life is a communal life. That's why Paul's praying the way he's praying. It's a communal life called to the practice love over the long haul with people. And in fact, the New Testament doesn't know any other type of Christian. Now, what I'm telling you is what our culture is shaping is the kind of Christian that Paul and the other apostles would scratch their head at and say, I don't even recognize what you're doing. I don't understand that. Because I understand people who come into life in covenant, and they're going to live together through good times and bad, through happy times and sad, through the beautiful and the ugly. And you're going to hang out and you're going to stay with one another. That's the type of Christian I know. I'm not sure what this whole thing is where we, we get offended, we pick up, we roll over, we, we go somewhere else. The New Testament actually doesn't know anything about that at all. Look, you will not find it. Now, flowing out of that, Paul goes on and says, well, this is a community that not only loves those inside, it even loves those who are outside. Verse 12 goes on, love for one another and for all. Love does not stop with our local church. We're called to love those who are outside of our local church community. First off, that includes loving all other believers, whether they're a part of our church or not. We are not the only church in Annapolis. We are not the only church in Anne Arundel County. We are not the only valid expression of the kingdom of God here. And a true spiritually loving community is not exclusivist. It's not, hey, look at us. We're, we're the thing that God is doing. The second somebody does that, love starts dying. And the work of the Holy Spirit starts dying among that community. We embrace all believers warmly as brothers and sisters in Christ. Their worship might look a little different than ours. They might dress a little different. They might have some difficult... None of that matters. What matters is, I was dead, now I'm alive. I was lost, now I've been found. By amazing grace, I was brought from being a child of the devil, which is the way I was born, into being a child of God. And you're now my brother and sister. And whatever other differences there are, those are covered over by the gospel. And so Paul says you have to love all. But not only other believers, when he says love everyone, that means everyone. 
Paul's saying you even love the lost. You embrace the lost because it does not matter who a person is. They bear the image of God. And the challenge here for the Thessalonians, as we've seen in the letter, is many of the people around them are persecuting them. They are treating them harmfully. They are saying and doing nasty things to the Thessalonians. And of course, the question would be, well, Paul, you can't mean them. But everyone means everyone. It does not matter how they are responding to us. We respond in love. We practice love to others, even those who mistreat us or speak evil of us. We don't fire up Twitter and in 140 character shots, descend to their level and go back at them. That's not the point. We don't do that. Paul says, no, no, no. You love them. And he even goes on and gives a visible example. And he's saying, you don't have to guess what this looks like. Notice in verse 12, he concludes by saying, as we do for you. I want you to love the same way you saw us loving for you. The Thessalonians had seen the type of love that Paul and Timothy and Silas had done and that he was praying for and encouraging to grow in them. They had practiced sacrificial, patient, forgiving love. And the Thessalonians had seen it. They can remember, you know, Paul came in here and he so loved us, he was telling us the gospel. And when many of us started reacting against that and started making threats to him, he kept loving us. And in fact, when we heard in Philippi, they had beaten him, locked him up, thrown him in jail, and he kept loving them. And when some of us chased him on down to Berea, the next town, and we were harassing him there, he kept loving us. And right down to the present, he loves us. True love costs. Always. There is no such thing as non-sacrificial love. That's one of the problems, again, we have in our culture right now is we think we're going to, whether it's get married, have a friendship, do whatever, that this love is going to be a love that does not cost. That is foolishness. All love requires sacrifice. And so Paul tells us, you've got to be willing to pay that. And you watched us do exactly that. Now, the next request that Paul goes into, and I want to talk about the second and third, how they fit together, because this is where it really rubs with our culture, is Paul's praying for them to be not only a loving community, but a holy community. And this is, in fact, the goal. In verse 13, Paul has prayed, God, direct us back to you. Lord Jesus, would you make the love increase and abound? And then in verse 13, it's so that. Now, if you have uh, the New International Version, which is a fine translation, they actually have this as another sentence where it's a third request. May the Lord make our way back to you. May the Lord make your love increase. And may the Lord make you grow in holiness or establish you in holiness. The problem is, is actually the Greek is really, really clear here. This is a purpose or result clause. The reason I want you to grow in love is so that you can be established in holiness. That's the reason. The third one's not really a third request. It's actually, this is the result. If you grow in love, what it's going to do is, it's going to produce holiness. Now think about that in our cultural context. We like love. We don't like holiness. We think love and holiness are actually pitted against one another. 
that they are not the same. And so, as if they're somehow diametrically opposed. But Paul right here says, see, that's a lie. I'm praying for you to have growing, increasing, superabundant, overflowing love. And here's why I want you to have it. So you will grow in holiness. So you will be a holy community. Because the more loving you are as a community, the more holy you will become as a community. Our community, if we're thinking through this, stops and says, whoa, 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 whoa. No, love and holiness are two different things. If you are loving, then you are accepting of whatever. There are no moral or ethical standards that come with love. And Paul says, no, that's not true at all. The idea that love and holiness are antithetical is false, and it misunderstands both love and holiness. A love that does not lead to holiness is not really love. And a holiness that is not loving is not really holiness. The two of them are related to one another, and that's because they are both ultimately expressions of God's character. We like to say today, well, the Bible says God is love, and it does. Two different times it says that. It says he's holy like hundreds of times. So we want to cut those out. We don't like those verses, but they are all of be holy because I am holy. I am holy. The Lord is holy. And so because both love and holiness are who God is, along with integrity, the Lord does not change, then that has to reflect who we are. It has to be built together. They're not against one another. And so the result of a community overflowing with real love is that that community grows in holiness, not that they abandon all ethical standards of behavior, which is what our culture tells us time and again. If you are making a call for me to change my conduct, you do not love me. But the scripture says that's absolutely false. In fact, we were, I was talking with Ryan the other day, we were chatting, and as a parent, if I do not correct my children's behavior, what does the scripture say my relationship to my child is? Do I, does it say I love them? Says I actually hate them. I hate them if I'm not willing to correct them. You and I can't grow in our character unless we're corrected. There is no change without recognizing that what I'm doing at present is wrong. And let me give you a little tip. There is plenty wrong with what you're doing at present. There is plenty wrong with what I'm doing at present. There is plenty wrong with what every human being who is sucking air right now is doing at present. For all of us, we might as well recognize that. That's, that's why the gospel is here. If I'm okay, you're okay, we didn't need the gospel. But, but you're messed up and I'm even worse, which is why we do need the gospel. And so Paul's telling us here in his prayer that no, love, growing love leads to holiness. Uh, so true biblical love is not contrary to holiness and conduct. It actually promotes it. And this idea of practice of holiness is going to be key in the remainder of the letter. It's going to be mentioned six times in chapters 4 and 5. So this is that hinge. This is that Luke, I am your father moment where Paul's getting to what he's going to talk to the Thessalonians about. And he's saying, here's where I'm really going to arrive. I'm going to arrive. We're going to be talking about holiness. You all have come out of this pagan background, and some of you are still wanting to live the way the culture lives. But I'm telling you, no, I want you to grow in love so that you can walk in holiness. 
And this is important for you, and it's going to come up six different times. Now, the power for holiness, Paul tells us, comes from God. Notice it's that he, the Lord, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. It does not come from self. This is why it is always, we are saved by the gospel, and we live by the gospel. It is not that I am justified from my sin by what God did, and now I'm going to work everything else and work my change. No, it is by the gospel that we are shifted and changed. Holiness is first and foremost a gift of God as a result of our status in Christ. I who was lost, I who was dead in my trespasses and sins, was raised up to life in Christ Jesus and went from being unholy, separated from God, but conformed to the world, to God said, you are now, you're given a new status. You are now my child, and you are now separated from the world to me, and you are therefore holy. That's justification. Sanctification is be who you are. I made you holy, so now I want you to walk holy. I want you to act holy. So you grow in holiness, but that too is fueled by the power of God. This, is, this wouldn't be a prayer if it were a command just for you and I to do something. But notice what Paul's doing is he's praying, Jesus, I want you to let them overflow in love for, for one another, for the world around them, and it, that's going to fuel them into growing in holiness so that their conduct will be different and changed. And if I can say for just a moment, you know how we can be useful to the lost world around us? Not by being just like it, friends. They can get that without coming to the church. What they need is for us to be distinct, not by wearing weird clothes or using strange language or I stopped any technology that was developed after 1947 I don't use. That's not what they need. But what they do need is us saying, I live by the Spirit of God, and I live in accordance with God's Word. I don't live the way the world runs. The world shifts and changes, and what is good and acceptable and popular today will be turned against a decade from now. We don't shift and change. We stand by what God says. And so God has got to work in us so that we can walk in holiness. But Note that the focus of the remainder of the letter is going to be holiness in actual conduct. Paul has largely talked about holiness as our gift and our status in Christ. But the rest of the letter, he's going to say, now this is what this is going to look like. And as we will see next week, the first thing he's going to turn to is sexual conduct, which is really popular in our culture right now because everybody likes being told that our sexual conduct is wrong. But it's the very first place Paul's going to turn in the letter, because that is part of what holiness means. Now, the motivation for holiness, and this is where we've called the series Holy Waiting, the motivation is the coming of Christ. Notice verse 13. I'm wanting you to be established, your hearts blameless and holiness, before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus. This is the motivation for holiness now, is the return of Christ in the future. As I've mentioned before, biblical eschatology or the study of the end is not all the things you see in strange Christian movies where we like to figure out what nations are going to do this and how can I get this right. That's not what biblical eschatology is about. Biblical eschatology is focused 
not on future events and dates, but rather holiness in our present lives as we look forward to the sure and certain return of Jesus Christ. It's a motivation for how I live now. And so this idea of the second coming of Christ is also going to dominate the second half of the letter, and it's going to provide the motivation for the call to holiness. Paul's going to say, live holy because Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming, therefore I pray that you would live holy, is basically what the rest of the letter boils down to. So notice this verse gives the two major themes in all of Thessalonians, verse 13. I want you to be established in holiness while you're waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is holy waiting. This is the entire book of 1 Thessalonians, if you will, is actually summed up in one simple verse. Now, how do we apply this? What does this mean for you and for me? How do we apply the word? Well, two questions and we'll come to the Lord's table. First, am I working to build a community of love? Paul prayed that. It's a prayer that's applicable to you and I because it's in the scripture. Am I working to build a community of love? God's will is for all Christians to be part of building a community that overflows with love, every one of us. And this is always going to be an ongoing process for every local church, the RCC included. We are never, before Jesus returns, going to say, done. Always going to be growing in love, always a need to do that always going to be more opportunities to practice love and forgiveness and grace and compassion until Jesus has returned. So let's turn this question around multiple ways. Am I helping to build a loving community right here? It's one thing to say, oh, I love my brothers and sisters in Egypt. That, that's easy. They're not doing things that offend me. Am I growing in a loving community right here with real flesh and blood people where it's not mediated by technology, we're actually rubbing shoulders? Another way of thinking of the question, am I working to build relationships with others or do I show up on Sunday? Those two don't go together. The, the, the relationships Paul's envisioning are not once in a while relationships. They're regularly interacting with one another, living life together? Am I investing myself in those kind of relationships? Am I growing in patience, kindness, grace, and forgiveness towards others within the local church? If you have not been offended by someone in Bay Ridge, then you've been here for like 14 seconds. Okay, it's, it's fact, okay? And the longer and closer you walk with someone, the more opportunity there is for offense. I'm very grateful. Linda and I have been married uh, this coming week. We'll mark our 33rd anniversary. As I've told you before, I have the most peace-filled home of any I know. We get along amazingly well. I just do whatever Linda says. And... <laughs> No, no, right. We, we get along great, but in 33 years of living together, there is lots of opportunity for offense. And the longer you go, the more there is this backlog of things 
that could separate the relationship, that could separate it. So I, to maintain the relationship, I have to grow in patience, in kindness, in grace, in forgiveness, in mercy, in simply dropping the offense and moving on. Because if I don't, it will be a chasm that will grow in the relationship. Last way to think of this question of if I'm building a community of love, am I committed to staying part of the community even through relational difficulties? Because our culture is molding and shaping you and me 24-7. When trouble comes, just go somewhere else. It's easy. We live in a mobile culture. There's all kinds of things. It's what we do. I hang out with people until there's some friction, and then we pick up and we move on. And I will stay with them until there is some friction, and then I will pick up and I will move on. Is that not the way we are? It's you know, we're, we're like the Beatles. We sing All You Need Is Love, and you can't even get in the recording studio with one another to sing All You Need Is Love. And then the relationship completely breaks down and we never see each other again. That's a sad commentary. We don't want to be that way. Am I building to, to stay committed even through relational difficulties? Second uh, question is, am I working to build a community of holiness? Because Christians are called to be part of a building that's growing in holiness. Because so that, I want you to grow in love so that there will be holiness. And this, too, is always an ongoing process. We will never say, I am as holy as is possible for a human being to be, short of when Jesus comes back. In fact, if you're really growing, I can remember when I was a young, naive believer. I'd been saved for about three or four months, and I was, I was 16. I was going through a lot of changes. I had managed to stop smoking dope every Saturday night, and I had managed to quit going out and getting drunk during the week. And I thought, I'm pretty holy. I think I got this sin thing taken care of. I remember literally thinking that. Then I heard Jesus bang his head on the wall and say, okie doke, we'll turn the light on a little bit. Never do I pray anything remotely like that anymore. Because now that I've been a believer, actually it was 1978, so I've been a believer for 39 years now. 39 years. I am more conscious of my sin now than I was the day I got saved. The stuff I even thought about back then was quite honestly so shallow and so surface. And now I know the depth of my own depravity. I know what's really in there. And if you're growing, so will you. So we'll never fully arrive, but we're always growing. So to turn this question around a little bit, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Do I realize that love and holiness are actually symbiotic, not contradictory? Now, symbiotic means they feed into one another. The more you have of one, the more it feeds into the other, which feeds back into the first, which feeds back into the second, and that's the way they grow. Our culture says they're at odds. They're fighting. Scripture says they're symbiotic. The more loving you are, the more holy you want to be. The more holy you are, the more you want to love. The more you love, the more holy you want to be. Don't be shaped by the world. The world's wrong. God is not in tension with himself. It's not that the Father is holy, but the Son is loving, and, and the Spirit over here is unchanging. No, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, triune God, completely holy, completely loving, 
completely integrity, non-changing, keeping to the truth. That's who our God is. And there is no tension. So first off, do I realize that? Because what's been pressed upon you as long as you've been breathing air in this culture is those two are at tension. But they're not. Am I, uh, is my idea of holiness being derived from Scripture or from culture? I saw a thing the other day where one of the big political things that was going on that, that's causing controversy, I won't even go into, but a, a, an article was written, an op-ed piece in the New York Times, and it said, for America to lead, we have to be good. And that which was good and true and holy and right was being defined in terms of this political controversy that really has nothing to do with morality at all. See, we're going to have a morality. We're going to have that which is holy. Our culture has an idea of the holy. It's just an unbiblical idea of the holy. We've changed it so that holiness in my actual conduct, keeping my word, uh, walking in sexual purity, being honest and full of integrity, those things are no longer considered holy. In fact, sometimes they're considered evil. But other things, being completely wildly tolerant of whatever foolish behavior someone can come up with, that's now considered holy and good. Where am I deriving my idea of holiness from? The world or Scripture? And you can't get out of hearing it from the world. I don't care if you become Amish. It is going to come and wait to find you every day to conform you to its image. Are we in the Scriptures? Am I helping to build a holy community here? Now, what that's going to look like is, number one, am I personally growing in holiness or have I made peace with sin? Again, I, I've been a believer since 1978. So I face this temptation. There are sins I have struggled with, I hate to depress some of you, since 1978. I, I'm better, but I still struggle. And you know what the temptation is? I just want to pull out the white flag. I'm just tired of fighting this. I'm just going to give in, this is good enough, we'll make peace. But if we do that, we're ignoring the so that you might grow in holiness. I can't be part of BRCC being holy if I'm not personally saying, Jesus, I want to be more holy. I want to be more like you in the middle of a culture that's trying to conform me and squeeze me into its mold and push me away. I want to be like you. So am I personally growing in holiness, or am I just making peace with my sin? And the funny thing is, what I struggle with and what you struggle with may be wildly different from one another. You may look at mine and say, how can you have a struggle with that? And then I look at yours and say, well, right back at you. I don't have a struggle with that either. Which am I doing? And then, am I helping to speak the truth in love? Am I willing to speak the truth in love to my brothers and sisters to help them grow in holiness? Right now, let me, let's just focus within Bay Ridge, okay? This is not a plea for you and I to go down to the docks and find somebody and excoriate them today. There's too much of that stuff that goes on. This is in the context of relationship. This is why Paul says, I'm praying for love. Because if you're going to speak the truth, it has to be done in love. If you're going to promote holiness to someone else, you have to be in the context of relationship with them, where there is love there. But when I am in that relationship, are we willing to speak to one another regarding our sin? and encourage one another in holiness. Serious growth in moral conduct requires encouragement and help. It is a community project, and it's never easy. 
it's easy to stay the same or degrade. The law of entropy that things are always winding down and getting worse and falling apart is true morally, not just in thermodynamics. We, we, left to ourselves, what we tend to do is fall deeper and deeper into sin. So Paul says, I'm praying that you would have the love, that the relationships are there, that we know we love each other, we are committed to one another, and then you can come and say, Brett, the way you spoke to this person was wrong. And be able to hear that and walk in it together. Now, we're going to come to the table, and the table is a table of holiness and of love. And it reminds us of the holiness of God and the love of God, and actually the integrity of God, because God made covenant and kept that covenant even at the cost of his own son. When we take the bread in a moment, it is a reminder that Christ became flesh because God is holy. You and I are not. Because God gave his law for us and for our good, and we violated it in thought and word and deed. And Christ came and took flesh and was broken because of your disobedience and mine. But it also reminds us when we take this cup that his blood was poured out because in spite of our disobedience, he loved us. And that love continues until he comes. So I want to invite you this morning to come to the table and let's not play silly games. We don't come to the table to say, Jesus, I'm really okay. I come in humility because of my sin. He was broken. And I confess my sin, knowing he's gracious and forgiving. And his blood was poured out to cleanse me of my sin. So let's come, confess, and then receive the love. Yes, Hannah. Yes, and so that's, seek the Lord. God wants to confront us with where we have fallen short, and that includes our sin before him, and it includes sin towards someone else. If the Lord brings to, to mind sin, confess, repent, and then receive the forgiveness of God. Uh, I remind all of our visitors, you do not have to be a member here. You do have to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have to be reconciled to God by the gospel, which means you recognize you are sinful. You have nothing in you that would earn salvation. Your works only contribute to your condemnation. They do not contribute to your salvation. If you believe that and you have received that, 
you are welcome to participate and eat with us this morning. If you don't, please let it pass. For what I received from the Lord Jesus, I pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus, this morning we come to your table. We are grateful that where we were unholy, you were holy. Where we had acted in hatred towards you, you showed love towards us. So this morning, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, reveal sin to us, and reveal to us fresh and new the grace and mercy of our God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. As you get the elements, please hold on to them. We will take them together in just uh, two or three minutes. Lord Jesus, as we hold this bread in our hands this morning, we are reminded of our unholiness. We are also reminded of the holiness of our God. Lord, you made us in your image. We were righteous and holy before you, and we traded that for sin. We traded it by our rebellion. And Lord, we do not sit here blaming Adam and Eve. We do not blame others, Lord. In taking this bread this morning, we recognize that it was our sin that fastened you to the tree. It was our sin that separated us from you. It was our sin that caused us to turn away day after day. So Lord, we take this bread, represents your body, and we confess with repentance and sorrow, where we have sinned against you, where we have sinned against others, where we have sinned in thought, in attitude, in word, in action. And Father, as we take the bread, we humbly confess that sin, and we ask that you would forgive us for the sake of Jesus Christ, who is broken, that we might be made whole. Take and eat. Jesus, we take this cup of the new covenant in your blood, which was poured out for our sins, and we are reminded fresh and new that despite our unholiness, despite our waywardness, despite all the ways in which we have wandered from you, disobeyed you, disobeyed the Father, that Jesus, you have loved us and you have sacrificed yourself and your blood, which is sufficient to cleanse us from our sins and to cause us to be forgiven and purified, to even release us from the power of sin, it is also a symbol of your deep and abiding love. How deep is your love for us, Lord Jesus? 
that you would pour out yourself for we sinners. And so Lord, we give you thanks for your blood. We give you thanks for your ever-redeeming love that is given to us. And we just simply say thank you for the blood of Jesus. Holy Spirit of the living God, I pray that as the God who is holy in your very name, as the God who sheds abroad the love of God within our hearts, as the God who is unchanging, I pray that you would work this in us today. Lord, I pray that what we have sung what we have talked about, where we have opened your word as we have come to this table. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would use it to strengthen and establish us in overflowing love. Pray that you would make us a community of love so that our hearts would be firm and established and strengthened and blameless in holiness as we wait for the coming of Jesus. Would you work in us so that we would be conformed a bit more each day this week to the image of Jesus and a bit less to this fallen, broken, wayward world? And as you do so, would you grace us that we would love one another and that we would love everyone around us and that we would reach out with the great redeeming love we ask this in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll conclude with a word of benediction. And today I'm going to use our text actually as the benediction. Since it's a great benediction, I encourage you to receive the blessing of God. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And God's people say, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church. God, we wait, you're coming.